I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominance. Hey there, Dr. Jill Weiner here. I'm a physician, meditation teacher, EFT tapping practitioner, author, anti-racism educator, and ally coach, and welcome to season three of Conscious Anti-Racism. I'm so excited to be back. It's been longer than I expected in between seasons, but I'm so, so, so excited to be back to bring you a slightly different format this season. We're going to be doing the same amazing interviews with uh, that amplify the amazing work that people are doing in the anti-racism space. And in addition, I'm going to be sharing of my own perspective on my journey and, and things that I notice in the world around and, and different tools that can be used as someone goes about their anti-racism journey. And I am so excited for this new format. We're going to be alternating. Every other episode is going to be um, something that I'll be sharing versus something that an, an interview that's amplifying the work of other people. I hope to really dissect some of the ways that that racism shows up in our daily lives that doesn't isn't always obvious for people who aren't on the living the lived experience end of it. And I'd also, again, like to really help share tools, how I, how I navigate certain things in my life as they come up, as I make mistakes, as I inevitably do, um, as I have awkward conversations or say the wrong thing or um, have something said to me that is uncomfortable. Um, how, how am I navigating this and how might you navigate it as well in a way that can help support the work that is, that is being done uh, to dismantle systemic racism? In this first episode of the season, I talk about how white supremacy culture or the dominant culture or how the culture that upholds systemic racism, what that even is, and how that shows up in spaces such as networking groups, networking calls, um, ways that it shows up that may not necessarily be clear unless you're really trained to, to recognize it, and and what tools you can use to help process it and to help learn from it. So as I had the, the experience that I talked about um, in, the, in the podcast, one of the tools that I love to use is tapping. I talk about this, we talk about this a lot in our conscious anti-racism trainings, but tapping is a really great technique to use when you are kind of on the receiving end of something that is causing you to feel um, harmed. And it's also really great to use, let's say someone were to call you into a conversation about the dynamic that just happened and you're feeling embarrassed or you're feeling some shame about it, or, Oh my God, what have I done? Tapping can also be great in that situation too. So as you listen to, as you listen to, um, as you, you know, if you find yourself getting defensive. So as you listen to the episode, just think of some, pay attention to the emotions that are coming up in you as you listen to it 
And um, that any of those emotions, any of those physical sensations that go along with the emotions are something that can, dapping can be really helpful for and can be a really, really great tool to continue to lean into this work rather than, rather than um, avoiding it or, or not, not feeling equipped to face that discomfort. And I wanted to talk today about the culture that upholds systemic racism. We hear, we know a lot about um, racist jokes and um, potentially we're starting to learn more about ways that race is portrayed uh, unfavorably. You know, non-white people are portrayed unfavorably perhaps in in the media, um, the the different treatment people get um, in terms of voting and in terms of criminal justice um, laws and um, sentencing. But a lot of us don't, and I certainly did not know about this culture that upholds the status quo, that upholds this system that keeps white people in positions of power. Um, This culture, it can be called dominant culture, the culture that sort of 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 the of the the culture that is in charge, that that keeps things, you know, that that's the in charge of most of the rules or the the policies or the organizations generally run by white people, generally run by white men, traditionally and currently. It can be called dominant culture. It can be called a term that can be quite um, jarring for some people if they've never heard it, which is called white supremacy culture. And that is basically a culture that places value on whiteness, that places value on um, white, that keeps white people in power and that devalues blackness and sees blackness as something to be feared. Whiteness is something to be um, uh, embraced and uh, as the norm and the standard and all that is good. And so there are characteristics of this culture. Um, And before I get too too much further into this, um, white supremacy is something that's like people know about that. And when people hear white supremacy, they think of like the KKK or, um, you know, marches in Virginia or um, Tiki torches, Confederate flags. So yes, that is part of it. That's the fringe. That's the outer, outer parts that are not part of necessarily part of the way everyone thinks, but the fringe is also part of the fabric and the fabric is this white supremacy culture that is upheld and continues to be upheld in our society. I'll speak for the United States. This is a culture that no one particularly chose to be a part of. We didn't, I I wasn't born saying, hey, let me like learn to be, to think that I'm better than everyone. I'm a white woman. Um, but it, 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 and it gets its teeth into everybody, gets its hooks into everybody, whether you're white, black, Asian, uh, Latinx, gay, straight, trans, cis, able-bodied, all of it, we all get affected by it, but we get affected in different ways. Some of it gets internalized, meaning, oh, I should be ashamed of who I am because society tells me that I should be ashamed of that. Um, and that's something that's realized like explicitly and also sometimes implicitly. So it, it affects how people feel about themselves. And it of course affects the way people behave towards other people. So I'm, 
I, I want to point out some of the ways this can show up in society without us realizing it. And part of the work that Dr. Maisha Claiborne and I do in conscious anti-racism is helping people and helping organizations see the ways that systemic racism and the culture supporting it show up in ways that we may not see. So I am part of a networking group that is a large, very, very high percentage white men in the South. And I would say about 95 to 98% of times where I have individual or, or small group networking with white men in this group or related to this group. So I feel like it's, you know, not just specific to this group, but it's where I do a lot of my networking. When I start to talk about what I do as an anti-racism educator, and I start to talk about the fact that like, I'm not perfect. I've got a lot to learn. We're all, you know, this is a culture, this is a system. And this is something we all, you know, we don't want to, we want to like look within to see ways that it shows up in us, even though we're like trained to not want to do that. Um, without a doubt, they start to tell me all the different ways that they are not racist, all the different black people they've been friends with, all the different families they've supported. Um, one gentleman told me that he grew up in rural North Carolina and there was a, there was a family of two black families in their whole neighborhood. One of them, their house burned down and everyone banded together to help take care of them. And that he also goes to a church in the Atlanta area that is diverse because he just really loves being around diversity. So, and, and he kind of co-opted the conversation to talk all about how not racist he is. And this is illustrating a few different of the, of the concepts that we, that we did not name or invent. These are, these are commonly known things about, about systemic racism and about white supremacy culture, but some of the things that we teach about in our conscious anti-racism courses and that I work with my clients on in, in allyship coaching, first off, centering whiteness. On a call with a white woman and a, a male person of color, self-identified Muslim, um, the white man took over the conversation and started talking about how not racist he is, not listening to learn, but, but speaking to, to teach. So that's one thing, centering whiteness, making it all about me as the white person, making it all about oneself as the white person in a conversation in general, and in particular about race. I've done this a million times in my life. It's, it's a thing that happens. I work not to do it, but it's a thing that happens. So I'm just naming it here. Now, the other thing that came up for me is two of the characteristics of white supremacy culture, dominant culture that we've already talked about, two of those characteristics, there's many of them, and this is based on the work done by Dr. Tema Oken. Um, if you go to white, uh, white supremacy culture.org, I believe, or type in T-E-M-A-O-K-U-N in uh, Google. So two of the characteristics, one defensiveness. So feeling the need to explain why a certain me as a person, one as a, one as oneself is not saying or doing something that someone is suggesting they are doing. And it is sometimes not even directly suggested that they're doing it, but this defensive, this need to say, I, I'm not, you know, that's not me. 
So I was talking about how we're all part of this problem, including myself. And then he's like, I really, you know, I grew up in this organ in this, but I have black friends and I've done this. And I go to a church that has black people. And this happens literally in 98% of conversations that I have with white men about when I'm in the networking calls about talking about what I do in anti-racism. This is the natural reaction that comes up is talking about all the different ways that they have not been racist. The second is called individualism. These are just two of many individualism. It's that like, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I, you know, I, I've got myself to where I am. I am an individual. I'm not like any other groups of people. I'm not like those other white people. I'm, I'm different. Somehow I'm different and I'm special. And that's like a huge, a huge thing in white supremacy culture. Again, I do it too. This is not something that like I'm immune from, but it was just so illustrative. Um, the co-op, you know, the, the centering whiteness, the centering, the white man, the person closest to power in our society's power structure feels the need to kind of take over the conversation. Um, and, and center his own narrative, his own voice, rather than being like, what's it been like for you, Jill, as a woman, what's it been like for you, other person who was not grown up white and, and just shared something that they had a lot of discrimination growing up rather than learning from other people. It's this centering myself. Then there's the defensiveness, like, Oh, I do this. I do this. And then there's this individualism. Like I'm not, I'm not like those other people. I grew up in rural North Carolina, but I'm not like that. I'm, I'm learning. I'm doing great. So what that ends up doing is silencing other people in the room. It makes it very difficult to have um, honest, real conversations because the reaction is basically like complete denial and, um, and, and, and taking the conversation away from where it really matters, which is the people who are marginalized. Um, and it, it, it effectively ends conversations and it also causes harm. It also can gaslight people who do have a certain experience, who, who have had experiences in the South at their multi, multi-racial churches where they're still treated badly um, for not being white. Um, being in a conversation where I was asked a question about what I do and this man answered and, and, and ended up taking another whole like 10 minutes of the conversation to talk about that. So these behaviors are not overt racism. They're not like telling, you know, jokes with racial slurs. They're not um, being mean to people. You know, they're not explicitly being, being mean or rude or exclusionary, but these are symptoms of the culture that uphold this system of power that becomes very, is very difficult to challenge or dismantle because there's all these like cultural aspects in place to keep it there. So I thought this was very fascinating and wanted to share it today. Would love for you to think about ways this has shown up in your life. If you're listening to this and you're a white person, what's your immediate go-to reaction when someone starts talking about race or anti-racism or racism? How have you possibly centered yourself in a conversation about race, your emotions about race 
or, or, or your own feelings about, oh my God, or your shame of whether or not you're grappling with what issues you may or may not have. Have you taken attention to yourself, which is what society defaults to, is to giving attention to white people? How might that be affecting the people you're having conversations with, whether or not there's people of color around you? How might that be playing out more largely in society? And if you're listening to this and you are not a white person, how has this is probably bringing up some times where you have been on the receiving end of this and, you know, reflecting it's it, it, what are, what have, have there been ways for you to kind of redirect the conversation or, or speak up or um, what, you know, what have you had to do in order to not be harmed by that dynamic? Cause it is very harmful. So um, something to think about, you know, and th this is why anti-racism education is important because we can all point our fingers at, at police shootings and at, um, you know, uh, lots of other different crimes committed against black people that are obviously racially motivated. And we can point the finger out there, but what we don't always see is the stuff that we are ourselves perpetuating. If you're in a, a space where people are talking about race, do you feel the need to raise your hand and talk first? If you're a white person, do you feel the need for a male to share before everyone else does? Have you considered pulling back and, and waiting to hear what other people have to say? I'm a work in progress. I am working to unlearn things that I have been taught that I deserve and that I earned that I don't deserve or don't earn. I live with a white man. I love him. I think he's wonderful. I don't have any problem in general with white men, <laughs> but this is like a, this is a cultural phenomena. This is a culture, a way that our culture manifests itself in, in spaces, particularly when it comes to talking about racism, race, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I hope you found this helpful and um, would love to hear any thoughts you have. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, M-D, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D.